0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Okay, today I want to talk about uh, idolatry smackdown. And I realize this is the second week in a row that I've used wrestling terminology. Uh, and maybe the only two years in our two times in our 16-year history. So uh, I'm not revealing a secret part of my life, or uh, you know, basically a guilty pleasure of watching wrestling or something like that. But anyway, I do want to talk about Idolatry Smackdown because that's what today's passage is about. It's 46 verses. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to summarize the first 16 and then we will read in sections the rest of it. Uh, What's happening at this time in Kings is God is withholding rain from his people because Ahab and Jezebel, the king and queen, have instituted Baal worship. And uh, Baal uh, is a foreign god. They're, they're actually instituting this worship in Israel. So the people of Israel, God's people, are worshiping a foreign god. And Baal, among other things, was a god of fertility. He's the god of the storm, the god of the rain. And so God withholds the rain to show his people you're worshiping a false idol. And I love you enough to, to ensure that uh, you, you see your idol for what he is. Um, unable to deliver. And so uh, it's been uh, no rain for three and a half years, and now God is going to bring rain. So he tells Elijah, who's in hiding, go back to King Ahab, and I'm going to bring the rain. So Elijah is on his way back to King Ahab. There is this interesting exchange. He meets a guy named Obadiah. Obadiah runs all of Ahab's affairs, and he says to Obadiah, Obadiah is a man who fears God. He's taken prophets of the Lord, true prophets, and hidden them so that they're not killed. So the king of Israel and his wife, the queen, they're, they're like killing God's prophets. It's terrible. So anyway, he, this is a man of God, and um, ultimately he says, go tell uh, I, uh, Ahab I want to meet with him. And he brokers the meeting. And then in verse 17, we'll pick up and read verses 17 through 19. This is their connection after the meeting is set between Ahab the king And Elijah, the prophet of God, verse 17, chapter 18. This is God's word. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the, and the 400 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab, after the three years, Ahab is mad because there's been no rain. And so he connects with Elijah. And he addresses Elijah as the troubler of Israel. Now, Elijah had said, he had prayed, And he had said, there will be no rain until God says there will be rain. And so Ahab says, you're the one who brought the trouble because you prayed to God and God stopped the rain. And so you're the one who, you know, caused all this grief in Israel. Uh, But the reality is that all Elijah did was bring the message of God to Ahab. Uh, and And he says, in essence, that you are really the troubler of Israel Ahab, because you've turned from worshiping God to worshiping Baals. You're leading all these people into idolatry. I'm just the messenger. I'm just telling you what God said. You are the problem. But Ahab accuses the one who brought the message from God. And Ahab's You know, Ahab's response is instructive because this is often how things go. When when God's people communicate the gospel, when we communicate the word of God, oftentimes the world ignores it. Oftentimes the world ignores it. But sometimes what can happen is the world uh, hears the message of Christ, this has happened throughout history, and points the finger of accusation at those who believe God's word and teach God's word and share God's word, uh, witness God's word. They, they, they say, you know, it's you are the problem. It's your narrow, bigoted belief about Jesus, this kind of uh, exclusive teaching that you bring. It, the, you are the troubler in our neighborhood, our city, our, our nation, our state, whatever the grouping is, our company, you are the troubler For what you believe. Um, And sometimes that happens. Rather than taking responsibility for his actions, Ahab blames someone who brings the word of God. And so when this happens, uh, we should never be surprised by this. Funny thing about Christians in America, there's always this shock and surprise when someone opposes the gospel. As if this is some novel, wow, this is some novel thing that's happening uh, this has always happened. This happened right in the text we're reading today. Jesus said in John 15, the world hates me, they will hate you. We just want to be sure that they don't hate us because we're jerks, but they hate us because of Jesus. If you're hated because of Jesus, that's a good thing. If you're hated because you, you're you just angry and you're a, you know, a crusty uh, old hypocrite or something, well, okay, that's, we, there's, that's not what we're talking about if we identify with Christ and we're hated, Jesus says that's the norm. You should be surprised when they don't hate you, not surprised when there's a little pushback for the gospel. And so we, we're do, we do well to be reminded that the Ahab scenario, you're the troubler because you brought the word. Uh, this is a helpful reminder for how, how things work. Next, what happens is that we have sort of the, the big battle, the big showdown. Uh, the smackdown between it's the battle of the gods and there's going to be a battle between Yahweh and Baal. And of course, we're going to see there's really no battle at all, but it's promoted as such. People come expecting such. So here's what happens, verses 20 through 29. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, Follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many, and call upon the name of your God, and put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, "'Oh, Baal, answer us!' But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, "'Oh, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened.' And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So before this great battle, uh, there is a word from Elijah where he soberly addresses the people of Israel. So the people of Israel have showed up for this. And verse 21, it says, he says to them, Elijah says, uh, uh," I'm sorry, verse 21, he says, Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. He's saying, stop limping between two opinions. There's, there's get, Stop the double-mindedness. He just very simply says to them, you need to make a choice. Uh, if you're going to worship Baal, well, just go for Baal. But if you're going to worship the Lord, Yahweh, then worship him. But you've got to commit one way or the other. So what's it going to be? And the people are silent. I mean, it's embarrassing. It's, it's grievous. The response should have been, Baal, are you kidding? No, God, who created all things and made a covenant with Abraham and r- delivered us from slavery in Egypt and brought us into this land and gave us vineyards we didn't plant and houses we didn't build. No, we're in covenant with Yahweh. What are you talking about? But they know the reality that they have a history. Yeah, they, they, they've heard the stories about what Yahweh did, but... Wow, they're committed to Baal. They believe that Baal brings the rain. They believe that Baal gives them children. And so they are really between two positions. And he says, you need to choose. And I think this is a word for someone here today, maybe many of us here today. This is a word. You cannot live uh, between Two gods. Jesus said you can't love mammon, the, the God of money. You cannot love money and God. You, you have to choose. You can't, you can't pick between this God and that God or the love of the world or God. All of us have to choose. This is a common theme in Scripture. You know, we live in a culture that is very loose in many ideas in many ways and noncommittal. But the truth is you really do have to make a decision In uh, in Exodus 32, after the people of God are worshiping the golden calf, Moses comes down from the mount, and what does Moses say to them? He says, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. We're going to make a choice. Step forward if you're going to serve God. If you're going to live for that golden calf, well, that's on you. But if you're going to serve God, step forward. Or Joshua, he leads the people into the land. They get the land, and almost the literal last words of Joshua At the end of his life, they've come into the land, and this is what he says. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that they served or in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Boom. Then he dies right after that. But he's saying, hey, we're here now. Now, you're all going to want to play around, and you're going to have to make a choice. Here's where my family is. We're going to serve God. Matthew 12, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Do you know this? That Jesus gives two options. He's not saying like, I'm one way, I'm one guru, I'm one loving prophet that you can listen to. He says, you love me and you serve me or you are against me. There's no middle ground. And uh, also, oftentimes you want to say, "Well, yeah, I want to serve you maybe on Sunday, but I'm you know, got other things to do the other six days a week." And Jesus says, "Then you are against me. There is no middle ground." And I personally, I am a huge fan of nuance. I love it. But in 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 when you pick your God, when you decide whom you're going to serve, there's zero nuance. It is a black and white situation. You either. Believe in Jesus and serve him, or you don't. And if you're seeking and learning and finding out, uh, that, I get that, that's a good place to be, to learn and to read, absolutely. To ask questions, absolutely. There's a place for all of that. Uh, but you ultimately have to make a choice. Uh, do you believe or not? There's no fence straddling, there's no wait and see, there's no keep my options open. Well, that's where they are. And so this wishy-washy, silent crowd, They've come for the rumble at Mount Carmel, and it begins with Elijah explaining the rules. Everybody will be given a bull. The 450 prophets of Baal get a bull, I get a bull. We cut up our bull and we put them on the alt put the bull on the altar. And Baal has every advantage in this, uh, you know, in this situation. Um, the the people are waiting they're saying hey this is really good we want to see what happens but Baal has all the advantages from their point of view it's in Baal's territory the way the world worked then is you believe that you kind of had a tribal or a geographic god and so this is in Baal's territory Baal should own this thing right Uh, Baal uh, his prophets go first So it's like arguing in, you know, uh, in overtime in football. Do we play sudden death? What do we do? Does each team get a possession? Well, here's how it goes down here. If Baal has the ball, so they go first, if they prepare their sacrifice and they call on Baal and fire comes down, game over. Who's going to sit around and see if Elijah can do that or or not? They're going to all be cheering. The people are going to be, okay, it's obvious. Nobody can do that. That's a miracle. Sending fire to... To, you know, to grill a bull, that's just no way that can happen. If that happens, Baal wins. So he gets to go first. It's like being the receiving team uh, in the overtime, huge advantage. Um, Baal is the god of the storm. So Baal could have brought rain, right, already, but he hasn't. But the picture of Baal oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes he has a lightning bolt. So Baal controls the lightning. He could strike the bull and set it on fire. This is his specialty. It's in his field. He's got home field advantage. He's got the ball first. He's got the lightning bolt. He's got the players. It's 450 versus one. 450 Baal prophets praying, crying out to Baal. I mean, if, if the number of people praying makes any difference, then Baal should have this because he's got 450 people and Yahweh's got one prophet who's going to call out to him. Baal has the support of the national leadership. So Baal has got the king and the queen on his side saying this, we're, at least we're acting like this is the religion of our land. And so what do the 40, 450 prophets do? Well, they start crying out. So after all of this, they start crying out to Baal from morning until noon. They are praying with, with all due respect to Jim Morrison. Somebody said they were singing, come on, Baal, light my fire. And... Uh, so they are singing that, they're they crying out, and it tells us at noon, there is no voice and no one answered. And so after three, four hours of this uh, hoopla, uh, Elijah, and I don't recommend this, he's under, the, you know, he's under the, the, the influence of the spirit, he begins to mock them. I don't think as a general practice that we need to read this verse in the application. is, I'm just going to go out and start mocking all non-Christians. Uh, there's a reason for him to do this, and God told him to do this. Uh, but he begins to mock them. And, you know, it's sort of effective because he's, he's taking the God that everybody's trusting in, and he's saying, hey, wait a minute, you don't believe in Yahweh anymore? Where's your God? Are you trusting Baal? Is he, uh, you know, is, is, is he a, uh, is he musing? Is, is he just sort of thinking and contemplating? Is he going potty, is what he says. Is he relieving himself? Uh, is he in the bathroom, and so he really can't uh, hear you and help you? Is he on vacation? Is he often, you know, but when he gets back, you know, he'll answer your prayer. He sends the automatic reply to your prayer. I'm, I'm out of the office, but I'll be back in a week. Is he just gone? Is he on a journey? Maybe he's asleep and someone needs to wake him up. So he's just sort of mocking their God. Well, they respond to that with frenzy, full pagan frenzy. And uh, they just start cutting themselves with swords and lances, and they are gushing blood, the text says. So now they're crying out to their God. They're gushing blood. I mean, this is an absolute... Uh, mess. It's what we would think of as maybe just some kind of pagan ecstatic, frenzied uh, sort of experience. Uh, it says he actually says they rave on. Verse twenty nine. They rave on until the afternoon, probably mid afternoon. So they they just are in this complete uh, state of rave. And verse twenty nine says, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. The point is, there is no bail. This is the moment in the Wizard of Oz where the curtain is removed and it's, a, and it's shown to be a dude. It's a fraud. It, this, this is the moment where, where Elijah is showing, Baal is a fraud. Nothing is happening. No matter what they do, they get no response. And then it goes to Elijah and it's his turn. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sieves of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. Then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. And at that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, when you see Lord written like that in all caps, it's it's God's proper name, Yahweh. So O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elisha brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. There. Well, it starts out in verse 30 with Elijah comes and he rebuilds the altar. So there was an altar there at one point, but it's in disarray. It's, a, it's really a picture, isn't it, of Israel at this time. They're in disarray. He puts 12 stones on it. The 12 stones, the altar, they're not 12 tribes in unity. There's a northern and a southern kingdom. So it just it shows their brokenness, their division, and that really they are in disarray, much as their altar has been in disarray. Uh, and so he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pour water on it. So he builds, the, obviously, he builds the uh, altar back. He uh, cuts up the bull, lays the bull on it. Uh, and he says, we are going to cover it with water. And he pours so much water on it that he digs a trench. And around the, the bull, around the offering, is a trench of water. And so he has made it very clear that this, this thing is not just going to spontaneously combust. So it's not going to be like something just happened. It's going to be, this is not uh, a fire worthy, uh, you know, easily lit sacrifice. It's completely soaked. And so then he prays to God and it's powerful what he, you know, he he really cries out here uh, to God. And he says, you know, you are our God. You're the God of Israel. I'm your servant. Answer me. Um, and, uh, oh, Lord, uh, you, that you have turned to turn their hearts back. And then the fire fell and consumed the, uh, the offering in front of them. And, of course, they fall in shock and cry out to God. It brings repentance to their heart when they see the power of God. So there's really two major things going on here. First of all, he is discrediting Baal. The whole act with the 450 of them doing their deal with no response, that is to discredit Baal. And we always need to have false idols discredited. We need to have them shown for the fraud that they are. We need to reveal that the promises that money and success and comfort and health and wealth and ease and popularity, whatever things that we are chasing, control of my life, all these kind of things promise security and joy and purpose in life. But like Baal, they always fail because they have no power to deliver what they promise that they can deliver. So this is about discrediting Baal, but it's also about bringing them back to God by revealing the power of God. As I was reading this over, it just struck me this morning that I think verse 37 is perhaps the most important verse in the entire passage. I didn't really see this, but verse 37 says, struck me this morning, answer me, O Lord, answer me, he prays, that this people may know you, O Lord, are God. Okay, we get that. He wanted to know that they are God and that you have turned their hearts back. This is a discrediting of idols This is a sacrifice to Yahweh for the forgiveness of sins. And this is an appeal for repentance to draw the people back. He's doing this to draw them back. He's not just rebuking Baal with taunts and mocking at one point, but also through just a demonstration of Baal's utter impotence. He's not only doing that but he's also appealing to the people on behalf of God. He wants them to know God. He wants their heart to be drawn to God, and their heart won't be drawn to God by just being told their idol's bad. Their heart will be drawn to God by seeing the power of God and the glory of sacrifice made for them initiated by God. Sacrifice offered by God for them. They don't offer. The fire doesn't come from them. It comes from God Almighty. God, God will provide the sacrifice to woo his people back to him this is about them returning this is the key well at the end of this he uh you know he does something that uh, according to our you know western sensibilities is is hard to understand but he takes these false prophets of Baal uh who are among the people of Israel that's what's key here these are these are all God's people and Or I suppose these could be the ones that were imported. Actually, these may have been imported with uh, Jezebel, but they're living among God's people. They're living under the king and queen. They're living in God's land and therefore held to God's standard. And Deuteronomy 13 required that anyone that led the people of Israel who was leading them to worship other gods was to be executed. So this is, this is capital punishment is what's going on here. And the reason that's hard for us to see is because we have a separation of church and state. Israel was a theocracy. So the laws of the temple and the laws of the land were both enforced. Uh, you didn't have the church enforces whatever they want to do over here and it's irrelevant uh, to the regular citizens of the nation and then you have civil government over here as two separate entities. That's what we have and so that's why the church, Romans says, uh, we don't bear the sword. Uh, The church can discipline through calling people to repentance and excommunicating those who live in unrepentant sin. That's the authority the church has but the church can't throw someone in prison or execute someone. In in Israel it was different. They were a theocracy. And so this is, according to uh, Deuteronomy 13, these prophets in God's land under God's king and queen are leading the people of God astray, and the penalty was execution. And that strikes us as strange because we don't really understand or value the holiness of God, and we don't really understand or value the exclusivity of worshiping God alone. So this strikes us in the face as something that's completely foreign and out of you know, out of whack, out of control. But if we understand the holiness of God and what he prescribed in his land for his people, uh, then we begin to perhaps understand it a bit better. When we read this, there's not a problem with the Bible. Uh, There's not a problem with Elijah. There's a problem with our own sanctification and our understanding of the holiness of God. Uh, i 'm not advocating we kill people because we live in a different age and we live in a di- we don 't live under a theocracy in Israel, we live in under the gospel under all nations. so we live in a different time in redemptive history. But in this time in redemptive history, um, this is how it was handled, and uh, God is no less holy today so while we don 't pick up the sword, we should grieve tremendously over the idolatry that is found among the people of God, and in my heart, your heart, our own hearts and view how seriously God takes it. Well, the, the Baal is discredited, the prophets are no longer there, and then finally we get the rain. Uh, verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing rain." of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. That's a prayer position. And he said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and he said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ran faster than Pastor Caleb. Uh, He's the fastest runner in the church. He's our best runner at a distance, at least at a distance. And uh, he ran faster than that. Why is that miracle recorded? I don't really know, except this is the proper position that the king follows the prophet. The prophet gets there first, the king follows him. The king doesn't follow him in his heart, we'll see, but this is the position. The prophet goes first and the king is to follow him. Well, how do we apply something that is so foreign? I mean, what would you do on Mother's Day? I heard about bull sacrifices (laughs) and execution of false prophets and rain because a guy prayed. What did you do for Mother's Day? I mean, that okay, I get it. This isn't, I don't have an acrostic poem with M is for the many things you do. <laughs> o is for how you others centered. I mean, I believe all that stuff and value mothers. So this is a weird Mother's Day sermon, obviously. How do we apply this? I think there's actually some great application for all of us, uh, including mothers. I think the first thing I'd point out from this passage that is not so obvious but it is in verse 37, is that we are to see the love of God in this passage. And here's why. The dispensing of false idols so that God's people turn to him is always representative of his love I've been reading a lot in the past few weeks on mission in preparation for a presentation at uh, I'd Ask for Your Prayer personally at, the, at our uh, conference this week that I talked about. Um, it's happening in the middle of the week. And I came across this quote from a, an author named Christopher Wright, and he's writing about uh, the unmantling of idols and how that's part of our mission, a primary part. And this is what he says, and it really re- resonates with this passage. He says, God's battle with the gods is an essential part of God's. God's mission. God's mission is the blessing of the nations, and the blessing of the nations must ultimately include ridding them of gods that masquerade as protectors and saviors, but are actually devouring, destroying, disappointing deceptions. The battle to do so is the battle of divine love. Here's why that's the case. Look at this story. Idols always abuse their followers. False gods always are taskmasters that never deliver. Look at Elijah. He's coming before God and crying out with his heart. And God in love and mercy provides a miracle. What's happening on the other side? There is frenzy. There is volume. This is, you've got to work it up. You've got to get in a frenzy. You've got to know the right incantations and the right prayers. What else? You've got to cut yourself, mutilate yourself, suffer, and bleed. When we see this story, we should look at worshipers who are in in service of their false God. Experiencing self-harm and ultimately death, this is where all idolatry leads. It is a taskmaster that will harm you and will never give you what it promises. And I know we don't have uh, statues to bail. We've got different gods, but your gods and my gods will always exact a painful price and lead to death. This is always the case. How many people have worshipped their work, worshipped success, worship putting in a few more hours to make a few more dollars at the expense of losing their family? You tell me that's not costly? When you, when you worship your work and your position and your status and your climbing to greater success and you lose your marriage because of that, you tell me? that that that's not workaholism that's idolatry and it costs you something it'll cost you your marriage it'll cost you your relationship with your kids it'll cost you your health you tell me it's worth dying early from a health condition because you you hustled more than anybody else and lived I'm not talking about being faithful we believe in that I'm talking about living for your work does that idol deliver it does not deliver. It will cost you. How many people have worshipped sex, worship sex, and it has led them to unfulfilled lusts. It's led them into an addiction to pornography, so that now they are a hollowed out, a hollowed-out uh, version of what they once were. You tell me that delivers? You tell me there's not a price to pay. And, and, and the person who has worshipped sex and was not satisfied with God's provision of a spouse and went looking for romance, intimacy, or sexual adventure outside their marriage, and it cost them their marriage. You tell me that's worth it? That your idol didn't exact something from you worse than a cut with a sword, actually. Every idol Will, will, will take you captive and beat you down. The prescription meds, which offer initially pain uh, management, and then when you no longer need them for pain management, but, but realize, boy, when I took those meds, it took the edge off all the anxiety and stress. And then take a little more and a little more and a little more, it's easy to get easy to get sucked into an addiction. And you're telling me that addiction really delivers, really delivers what it promises, escape. Initially, it did deliver uh, what it was intended for, escape from the physical pain after your surgery or whatever. But in an ongoing way, did it really deliver what it promised, freedom from the pain that you experienced? No, it just created more pain, more suffering. And so when God dismantles our idols and says, choose who you will serve, choose me, he could do nothing more loving because he is the glorious, gracious, benevolent, merciful, kind God who says, come to me and I will give you rest. He's not trying to mess your life up. He's trying to save you from a messed up life. He's not trying to kill you. He's trying to rescue you from death. This display of the impotence of Baal and the glory of God is God's love to free his people. So verse 37, so that they know him and they have their hearts turned back to him. This is the love of God. This is the love of God. He ultimately offers his son as a sacrifice. This picture here is a picture of his sacrifice that he offers for us. You know, it would have been natural for, what would be the most natural thing in a drought where they believe Baal brings rain would be to stand up and for Elijah to say, okay, let's stand up here. You pray for rain, that's what we need. We don't need fire. You pray for rain, I'll pray for rain. And we'll wait after your prayer, we'll give it an hour, then I'll pray. And if whoever brings the rain, that's God. That's what makes sense here. That's really the battle is over the rain, but, but he calls for fire. Why? because they need a sacrifice for their sins before God brings the rain. They need a revelation that God is a God who's faithful to his people, faithful to his covenant so that he will provide the sacrifice. He will light the fire and atone. This is a picture of atonement of their sin. They don't really need rain ultimately. They need a new heart. They need forgiveness of their sin. They need to repent back to God. That's what they need more than rain. That's why it's not a rain smackdown. It's who can bring the fire. That's what it's about. It's a picture of the sacrifice of God. We need to see the love of God in this, and I'm really out of time, but I've got to say this because this is for a mom in the room, maybe a bunch of moms in the room. Uh, We need to believe that God is the one who opens eyes and brings repentance. This story is not a story about the courage of Elijah, it's not about the boldness of Elijah. Oh, he's bold. He goes 1 verses 450. He's bold for sure. He makes a bold claim. Courageous guy, no doubt. But this is not a story about the courage of Elijah. This is a story about God who turns people's hearts to him by revealing his power, by providing a sacrifice, by lovingly dismantling the lies of false gods. And the reality is only God can open hearts and lead his people to believe Elijah couldn't do that. Elijah was a prophet. He brought the word of God and nobody believed. But when God acted and opened eyes, everybody's on their face saying Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. God reveals himself through Elijah's weakness. Elijah's not strong. He's got one guy. He's one guy with some words He doesn't have home field advantage. He doesn't have the king and queen on his side. He doesn't have 450 prophets. Elijah shows up in weakness, but he points everybody to God and prays. And God acts. God acts. There's a mother here. Maybe many mothers that need to hear this today. It is not going to be through your actions. Certainly not your actions alone. They're going to open up the the heart of your kids. It's going to be God revealing himself to them. Now, you can speak in a way that dismantles the idols of the world, and you can provide a loving example, and you can repent when you're unloving uh, and, and be humble. So you can do all of that, but God alone reveals himself to his people when Elijah prays. There's some in the room that you your heart cries out because your mom is not a believer. And you say, what can I do for my mother to lead her to Christ? What can I do? Well, the good news here is it's something that God does to open up hearts in response to prayer. You can point to the weakness of the idols of the world to your mom. You can seek to be a faithful witness. And when you fail, you can ask forgiveness and repent and show humility. But at the end of the day, God's got to bring the fire. At the end of the day, God's, at the beginning of the day as well, God's got to bring the conviction. They are on their face because of the work of God who opened their eyes that he is the one who brings the sacrifice. He is the one who provides, and he provides the sacrifice of Jesus. You can tell of the sacrifice. You can pray that they see, but God is the one that opens hearts And this story gives great, great hope. Some of us love someone that has strayed from the faith. Probably everyone in the room knows somebody that has strayed like Israel strayed. And this story should give every one of us great hope for our friends, uh, our former church members that have strayed people we grew up with that served Christ and no longer do, family members that have strayed, a spouse that has strayed. This should give us great hope that God is the God who reveals himself so that his people may return to him. Let's cast our care on him. You need more confidence in God, not more confidence in yourself and your answers and your persuasion. You need less fear of Baal and his grip on your loved one's life. We need more hope in God to bring revival to the church in our city and our nation and our world today and less fear about the power of the world, the flesh and the devil. Because when God shows up in power and reveals himself, people end up on the ground saying, you are God. May God bring the fire to us and to those we love for his glory that his people return and that 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 those who don't know him see him and that the idols of this age are seen for what they all are empty and hopeless frauds let's pray lord we today read this story and we just see your power and we see your need, our need for your power today god how we need you every mom in the room feels the need for your power on mother's day Perhaps she's being honored today and feeling like, well, boy, it sounds like you're talking about somebody else. That's not me. We all see our weakness. We all see our inability. Lord, we all see, uh, Lord, our own drawing to idols. We look to so many places for our purpose, our comfort, our strength, our security. And we think that'll give us something And Lord, thank you for the truth of the word that we can cry all day and serve our idol with great sacrifice, but there will be no answer. And we can turn to you and you bring the answer. We thank you for this. Lord, you are great. You are awesome. You are powerful. Thank you for this display that you are the victor, that there is one true God. And we return to you with our hearts today. We pray for those we love who need to return or need to come. And we trust you because you are great. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.